A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 40. Oh, episode 40. This is a big one. In the last episode, we took an in-depth look at the heady months of October and November 1950. In both of these months, we saw the Chinese intervention begin, only to withdraw, only to begin again, with a massive attack on the 25th of November. It had been a frustrating experience for General Douglas MacArthur, the man tasked with commanding the forces of the United Nations in Korea, and the man who had also seemed positioned by the end of the month for a career-defining triumph. On the one hand, the Chinese had apparently been beaten back after their initial flurry in late October. However, on the other hand, 
it was becoming clear to MacArthur that his orders had changed. In the past, he had taken solace from the terms of NSC 73, a policy report which stipulated that if the Chinese attacked, MacArthur would be permitted to attack targets in Manchuria along the Yalu River crossings. Yet the stunning decision not to pursue the Chinese outside of Korea left MacArthur seething and the Chinese free to operate unheeded before they broke against his troops. The sudden absence of any Chinese from the field was also difficult to explain. Looked upon cautiously by several figures in the UN command, MacArthur came to see the initial attack as the limit of Chinese capabilities in the region. He was, after all, going off the intel he had been given, which suggested numbers of Chinese at a third of the strength that they had actually possessed. Under these circumstances, his objectives could be best achieved by engaging in a probing advance towards the Yalu, with fallback positions already established. These preparations, not to mention MacArthur's intel, proved woefully inadequate. In this episode, we'll examine the political and military fallout from this concentrated Chinese assault when the volunteers of Mao Zedong surged forward, and this time would not go away. I will now take you to late November 1950. Song of the Week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on iTunes. What's that? Not 1956? Well, yes, it is, history friend. But you see, here's the thing. I often ask you guys to go on to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and sign up for only a fiver a month to access the Suez Crisis, but I'm not going to do that this time. Instead, I'm going to say there's so many other ways that you can support this podcast absolutely free of charge, and one of them is to be fit. Be fit, of course, being the acronym you can use to remember all the best ways to support. B being for blog, E being send me an email, show your support, F being like us on Facebook, join the group, I being for iTunes, tell being for tell anyone. Now, back to I for iTunes, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes if iTunes is your thing. Statistically, most of my downloads come from iTunes, so I know fairly well that most of you guys are actually accessing this podcast through iTunes, despite its lovely flaws and some benefits, so I've been told. I'm an Android man through and through, but even I realise the benefits of iTunes, especially because it's a massive book of podcasts, essentially. And the reviews there are more extensive than any other body of podcasts out there. So make sure you do your part by reviewing this podcast. It only takes a second, especially if you're already signed in through iTunes, which you probably are if you've done anything related with Apple in the last few months. Next thing you know, your review will be there, And I'm toying with the idea of reading out reviews, just like I'm toying with the idea of returning to reading out patrons like I used to. In any case, I would love to see these reviews increase, because I used to be on you guys all the time, but then I changed to Patreon instead. So I thought the 40th episode was the best time, was as good a time as any, to let you guys know that, well, we're getting back to be fit, because there's other ways to spread the word about this podcast and help it grow, other than just supporting on Patreon. To those of you who have done bits of be fit, or parts of it, or all of it, or are thinking of doing that, thank you guys so much. In fact, yeah, you deserve this. Thanks so much. You guys are great, and you keep me going and this podcast going, especially in tangled fortnights like these, where I'm releasing six episodes of the Korean War in a block, because, yeah, I didn't plan this all very well, and we need to get the Korean War out of the way in time for the Treaty of Versailles anniversary project, which is a whole other ballgame. Anyway, let's not keep you any further. You're not here to hear me rambling. You're here to hear what happened 
when the Chinese attacked. But first, the song of the week this week is The Gabby Glide by Billy Murray. It was released in 1912. Available as always on the free music archive just by clicking on the link below. Enjoy it, guys, and we will be back as always with episode 40 of The Korean War. Everybody's raving about the real fancy two-step. Everybody wants to do this more fancy new step. It's a funny bear, carrot on a tear. Well, I do declare it is classy. Gabby brought the dance and it's got us all a-going. Since she came, no other twirl has had any showing. It's a music treat for your dancing feet. It is flashy but neat. Just a twist and a bend that you hope will not end. Oh, oh, that Gabby, Gabby glide. It's just a real Parisian flight. Prance along as though you were upon the boulevard. Dance it here and dance it there and keep on dancing hard. Start into the side, do the Paris right. Swing up here then wide. Oh, oh, that Gabby, Gabby glide. Don't lag or let your feelings hide. Do the side step crisp and then go back the other way. Do the forward dip and see how you begin to sway. Oh, oh, that Gabby Gabby John J. Mucho had seen a great deal by late November 1950. As the American ambassador to Korea, he had been there in the early months of 1950, when the desperate urgings of Syngman Rhee to reinforce his republic appeared to fall on deaf ears in Washington. He had also travelled to Washington, where he was passed over by where he was passed over by several high-ranking figures of the Truman administration, essentially told not to worry, and then sent on his merry way. Within a few weeks of his arrival back in Seoul, Mucho had lived through that experience of the invasion of the North Korean People's Army, which he had of course been told not to expect. He had watched Rhee's government fall apart under the pressure, he had read the exasperated reports of government officials, both in Seoul and across the Pacific, who asked how such a calamity could have possibly happened. He had fled further south with the president, and he had started to lose hope in the future of South Korea. And then, he had been there when the land had been reclaimed, when everything had somehow turned around, and when General MacArthur received adored praise from Syngman Rhee as the latter was restored to power. He had seen South Korea's writ grow, and he had of course learned of the terrible excesses of Rhee's regime as it did so. He had felt spirited by MacArthur's thundering advance, and for a time he genuinely believed that a victory in Korea, a total allied triumph on the peninsula, could in fact be possible. But then, then, he had seen the Chinese attack for the first time in late October, and he had read and disseminated to Washington those reports which painted Allied forces in a damning light. Were such an attack to come again, Mucho believed, the Allied line would surely crumble. Incredibly, as Mucho recounted in his memoirs, he had talked with MacArthur in the interim, before the second Chinese attack, but he had found the general even less cautious than he had been after his Inchon triumph. In spite of the evidence, MacArthur appeared to Mucho as 
utterly convinced as before that the Chinese would not intervene in the war in force, even though that was exactly what they had just done in October. Muccio later recalled from memory those vivid days of late November 1950, when the Allied atmosphere seemed high on tension as the unprecedented test approached. Muccio said, His, MacArthur's, exact words as I remember them were, There may have been 25,000 Chinese across the Yalu, but there cannot be more than 30,000, otherwise my intelligence would know about it. I can still picture MacArthur posturing with his corncob pipe. The two of us were alone at the time. MacArthur was a very theatrical personality. I don't think MacArthur even blinked his eyes without considering whether it was to his advantage to have his eye blink or not. Everything was thought through, but it became so a part of his nature and his personality that it seemed to be automatic. Ambassador Mucho can be considered one of those political bystanders to the war in Korea. The entire time, through the different phases of the conflict and under its very leaders, Mucho remained an uninformed, desperate observer, unable to ever acquire enough information or intelligence to properly grasp what was going on or why. It must have been an incredibly frustrating experience as he watched his home government repeatedly underestimate and mistake the challenges put in front of itself, or as he watched MacArthur somehow blunder into yet another Chinese advance. Yet, as Mucho's account here shows, MacArthur didn't engage in the probing manoeuvres towards the Yalu because he was irrational or racist. He did so because his intelligence had led him to believe that the Chinese could not, in the state that they were in, make a considerable impression on his forces or on the strength of his advance. Had he known the true extent of the Chinese capabilities, it is highly unlikely that a career soldier such as MacArthur would have thrown his forces against the nearly 200,000 Chinese that awaited both of his subordinates in the northwest and northeast of the peninsula. We must also bear in mind that the behaviour of the Chinese confirmed MacArthur's intelligence. Mao's forces had vanished by the 6th of November because, according to MacArthur's intelligence, they were too small in number and too ill-prepared to keep going. To MacArthur, the picture of Chinese enthusiasm was confirmed, but so was the superiority of his own forces to anything that Mao could muster. If we can remember back to our examination of Mao's dealings with Stalin, as the question of intervention was repeatedly raised, we'll be able to pose a theory ourselves as to why the Chinese engaged in such a stop-start campaign. It was a great coincidence that Mao's behaviour confirmed MacArthur's suspicions about the Chinese capabilities, but Mao didn't act with MacArthur in mind. Mao acted, I would argue, in consideration of the deal he had made with Stalin. In return for the promise of certain articles of aid, Mao told Stalin he would advance. If Stalin's aid was not forthcoming, though, Mao claimed that in six months' time he would withdraw a portion of his men and merely hold a defensive line some miles south of the Yalu, rather than engage in a full-scale invasion of the peninsula that had been expected. Mao's pullback seems to have been a reaction to Stalin's failure to provide the badly needed resources to the People's Volunteer Army, in addition to the other considerations which resulted from this, that the Chinese forces were low on supplies, strained after such an intensive assault, and attempting themselves to probe the Allies and establish a stronger defensive position. Mao's political and military concerns were intertwined. The practicalities of conducting such massive military operations were legion, but they did serve as a genuine opportunity to test the political waters. 
Perhaps a show of force would demonstrate to the Allies that the Chinese were serious. If not, then their absence would confuse the United Nations and perhaps lead MacArthur to underestimate them once more. In other words, I believe that, far from one explanation, a mixture of reasons can be used to explain Mao's decision to halt the initial assault. Yet at the same time, I'd also argue that it was highly convenient for Mao that these efforts complemented his other goal of demonstrating to Stalin that he was both capable of, and serious about, pulling his forces back if this was required. This meant that his earlier threat to withdraw portions of men if Soviet aid wasn't forthcoming evidently had weight, and was far from empty. Whatever Mao's reasoning though, the Chinese assault on the 25th of November ripped through the Allied lines on a scale never before seen. To MacArthur the situation was undeniably grave, and it also seems to have profoundly wounded him. The idea that he could have been so wrong. From the night of the 25th, hundreds of thousands of Chinese poured over Allied lines, having husbanded their energies and resources by pulling them over the Yalu under cover of darkness in the previous weeks. The preparedness and numerical superiority of the Chinese was matched only by their tenacity, ferocity and genuine skill in battle. It was to the immense detriment not merely of MacArthur but several of his contemporaries that he underestimated the fighting prowess of the individual Chinese soldier. Many seemed to forget that hundreds of thousands of Chinese had been fighting enemies both foreign and domestic for several decades, and they'd become hardy, resourceful, brutalised and intensely skilled as a result. They faced skilled Allied soldiers for sure, but these were soldiers who wanted above all to go home by late November, and who had been told that soon they would be leaving this stinking peninsula. Many of the men who had enjoyed their strikingly misplaced Thanksgiving dinner only two days before would not have a chance even to change their clothes for the next three months. Such was the force and intensity of the coming campaign. It pushed MacArthur, not to mention the men on the ground, to the brink and was arguably the grizzled general's worst defeat. He felt it deeply, as his sombre cables home attest. Only a week after saying they would be home by Christmas, MacArthur wrote to Washington on the 28th of November that The resulting situation presents an entirely new picture which broadens the potentialities to world-embracing considerations beyond the sphere of decision by the theatre commander. This command has done everything humanly possible within its capabilities, but is now faced with conditions beyond its control and its strength. President Truman had achieved his objective and had managed to achieve the equally useful victory of muddying the public's perception. It was General MacArthur who had led our boys into the slaughter. It was MacArthur who had suffered from bad intel. It was MacArthur who had always possessed such an enormous ego that he had been blinded to the realities of the day. Truman must have felt satisfied that much of the heavy lifting had thus already been done, but it was necessary to assemble a meeting of the National Security Council nonetheless, to acquire an accurate picture of the situation. The pronouncements made at this meeting on the 26th of November were striking, precisely for what they did not do. General Omar Bradley established the mood of those assembled when he noted, No new directive should be issued for the time being, certainly not until the military situation clarifies. The reports coming in over the press and radio about the strength and momentum of the Chinese Communist Offensive might well be exaggerated. It is entirely possible that the Chinese Offensive might not go very far because of the extremely difficult terrain, which we would find advantageous from the defensive point of view, 
and because the Chinese have a difficult supply situation. Bradley's response here and his recommendation that MacArthur shouldn't be issued with a new directive, in other words, that he shouldn't be provided with new orders which would permit him to attack the Chinese in Chinese territory, were echoed by his peers. The Secretary of Defence, George Marshall, noted that, We should use all political, economic and psychological action to limit the war. We should not go into Chinese communist territory and we should not use Chinese nationalist forces. To do either of these things would increase the danger of war with the Chinese communists. We should not get into a general war with the Chinese communists. Thus the concept of limited war and the key ingredient to the defence budget increases was confirmed painting a still more complete picture of MacArthur's responsibility. The Secretary of Defence Marshall added, There is a big gap in our lines, and I don't know what MacArthur intends to do about that. It is his problem. I won't even ask MacArthur what he is going to do. We have no business here in Washington, 8,000 miles away, asking the local commander what his tactical plans are. We must follow hour by hour any developments pertaining to our getting further involved with the Chinese communists, but we won't ask MacArthur his tactical plans. A man who we've said nothing really about at all in this series, mostly because he wasn't particularly important to our narrative, was Albin Barclay, the Vice President of the United States. Barclay was present at this meeting, and demonstrated a key point, often forgotten by historians, when he spoke up. Alluding back to MacArthur's announcement about the war being over by Christmas, Vice President Barclay asked, Did General MacArthur make this statement attributed to him a week ago that the boys in Korea would be home by Christmas? Did he know what was going on? If he did know, why did he say it? How in the world could a man in his position be guilty of such an indiscretion? He couldn't have known about the Chinese communists if he made the statement in good faith. He couldn't have gotten the boys home anyway. I can't comprehend why the statement was made. How can we have any confidence in MacArthur's estimate that there are 200,000 Chinese communists facing us now? A week ago he thought there was only 50,000. Maybe there aren't 200,000. Maybe there are 300,000 facing us. We can't hold on if the Chinese go in for an all-out offensive. What do we do? If this record of Barclay's views are correct, and they were recorded in the notes of the National Security Council meeting, then they display a striking disconnect between Truman and his vice president. Truman evidently hadn't decided to keep Barclay informed. Consider Barclay's statement, then, that MacArthur couldn't have known about the Chinese communists if he made the statement in good faith. This was, in fact, the crux of the issue. MacArthur and Washington were reading from two different hymn sheets. As had been the case since the beginning of the war, the Truman administration hadn't deemed it appropriate or necessary to share with their commander the true realities of the situation. Where Barclay here was incredulous at MacArthur's uninformed statements, he came close to discerning what was going on. MacArthur, an egotistical showman for sure, would never have made such sweeping statements if he didn't feel confident that he possessed the intel to back it up. As Ambassador Muccio attested earlier in this episode, MacArthur didn't blink unless he believed it would benefit him. It therefore seems incredible to me that he would make such an early pronouncement about victory without first considering the situation. Subsequent historians would apportion too much blame on MacArthur's hubris as a way of explaining how the general was blinded to the true extent of Chinese preparations.
There is a difference between knowing the realities of the day and accepting them. The conventional record would claim that, even while the veteran commander knew the facts of the Chinese preparations, his own shortcomings in ego and ambition prevented him from accepting them, since he was just that desperate for a final triumph in Korea, they suppose. I would be the last person to go gung-ho for a man like Douglas MacArthur, but in this case, I feel that the record has been kind of unfair to him. Maybe you agree. I believe that when MacArthur engaged in the probing advance towards the Yalu, a move approved by those in Washington, don't forget, he did so armed with intel that affirmed the wisdom of that action. This is confirmed by MacArthur's claims after the event as well as his reports home. MacArthur's panic regarding the facts about the true Chinese numbers was palpable, even in a stoic career soldier such as he was. Had MacArthur known about the Chinese preparations and numbers, his advance towards the Yalu would have been something akin to a gamble at best, and suicide at worst. The kind of depression MacArthur fell into, even for a time, didn't come from a gamble, but from realising that one had been fundamentally wrong about the realities of the situation, and from feeling that resulting responsibility land heavily on one's shoulders. As arrogant as MacArthur was, he wasn't immoral or devoid of compassion for his men, and he knew that he had messed up royally when the Chinese in their hundreds of thousands emerged. The major conclusion from the National Security Council meeting on the 26th of November 1950 was that limited war would be the way forward. To his colleagues on that day, Secretary of State Dean Acheson put the American strategy in the following stark terms. We must ask ourselves, what do we want in Korea? The answer is easy. We want to terminate it. We don't want to beat China in Korea. We can't. We don't want to beat China in any place. We can't. Our great objective must be to hold an area, to terminate the fighting, to turn over some area to the Republic of Korea, and to get out so that we can get ahead with building up our own strength and building up the strength of Europe. In this statement, Acheson had put forward the gauntlet of limited war in its starkest, purest terms. He had also effectively stated the true war aims of the administration and the underlying reason of the conflict to begin with, building up our own strength and building up the strength of Europe. Rarely had a statesman so explicitly defined the policy of government, and rarely did that government's chiefs seem so in agreement. President Truman noted after the meeting that he was pleased with the agreement that sounded to Atchison's statement, and that he was happy with the consensus among the highest levels of the administration which had been reached. If this had been Truman's strategy all along, to use the overwhelming threat of the Chinese and the unattractive possibility of a total war in Korea to deter one's peers from committing more to the struggle, then it was a roaring success. On the 30th of November, Truman engaged in some questions and answers publicity as members of the press fired questions in his direction. Having anticipated much of their questions and having his own agenda for calling the conference, Truman would be largely taken by surprise when the question of nuclear weapons was raised. This question and Truman's subsequent hedging of the answer came to define this presentation, but we must look at what Truman had said before this more infamous slip-up to discern the administration's new approach. Speaking of the situation in Korea, Truman said, Recent developments in Korea confront the world with a serious crisis. The Chinese communist leaders have sent their troops from Manchuria to launch a strong and well-organized attack against UN forces in North Korea. This 
had been done despite prolonged and earnest efforts to bring home to the communist leaders of China the plain fact that neither the United Nations nor the United States has any aggressive intentions towards China. The Chinese attack was made in great force and it still continues. It has resulted in the forced withdrawal of large parts of the United Nations command. The battlefield situation is uncertain at this time. We may suffer losses as we have suffered them before, but the forces of the United Nations have no intention of abandoning their mission in Korea. If the United Nations yields to the forces of aggression, no nation will be safe or secure. If aggression is successful in Korea, we can expect it to spread throughout Asia and Europe. Because this new act of aggression in Korea is only a part of a worldwide pattern of danger to all the free nations of the world, it is more necessary than ever before for us to increase, at a very rapid rate, the combined military strength of the free nations. This is a time for all our citizens to lay aside differences and unite in firmness and mutual determination to do what is best for our country and the cause of freedom throughout the world. If Acheson hadn't made it clear to his peers at the National Security Council meeting, then the president reiterated the point here. It was a time to rearm and stand up to the challenge which the united threat of Sino-Soviet communism posed, not to cower in the face of the Chinese act. Truman and Acheson demonstrated their penchant for timing and for psychology, having picked the perfect moment to present this policy line to their peers. The trap had been set and sprung, the scapegoat firmly established, and now the aims of Truman, Acheson and many others had been transplanted to the rest of the government. A very limited war, a rallying of allies, an opportunity to husband one's resources, a conflict to supercharge American expenditure and defensive capabilities. This was what the Korean War would be. It remained to be seen, though, exactly how General MacArthur would react to this development or the resulting limitations it would place on his command. The subsequent judgments and assessments of MacArthur's decisions were unflinchingly brutal. On the 1st of December, members of both parties in Congress were invited to attend a small meeting with the President for more information, and it was there that additional questions were asked, with the common thread running through discussions. Why had MacArthur guaranteed that the boys would be coming home when there had evidently been a Chinese supernova waiting in the hills? All the while, the question focused on MacArthur rather than Washington. Why had MacArthur failed to see the Chinese coming? Why had MacArthur failed to plan for such eventualities? Why had MacArthur split his forces in two? One Democrat asked how it was possible that MacArthur had missed the signs, to which Omar Bradley responded that, Undoubtedly, General MacArthur was unaware of the size of the concentration of enemy forces, or he would not have undertaken exactly the kind of operations that he did, and he would have been better prepared to meet the attack. A Republican congressman then quipped as to whether it was well known that large amounts of Chinese troops had been in Manchuria. Yes, Omar Bradley replied. Well, isn't there a command intelligence at MacArthur's headquarters? The Republican queried. Yes, there is field intelligence in Korea, Omar Bradley replied, adding that. The point is that the Chinese came across the Yalu River at night in small numbers, and they moved down through Korea in short columns also at night. It is very difficult to pick up these columns by air reconnaissance, and since they move in such small groups, it is difficult even for our intelligence on the ground to make an accurate estimate of communist strength. Throughout the proceedings, you'll notice there was little direct questioning of Washington's intelligence capabilities, or of Washington's failure to keep MacArthur appraised of the situation. 
the impression had been created over the previous months that MacArthur was somehow better appraised of the situation in Asia than the President. Indeed, this was one of the reasons, Truman claimed, that he had needed to see MacArthur in the middle of October, because he had been worried also about rumours of Chinese intervention, rumours which, of course, were known of in far more detail through Washington's extensive intelligence network than in MacArthur's military intelligence command post in Tokyo, for crying out loud. Bear in mind also in the months before how any intelligence reports from MacArthur's staff back to Washington appeared to fall on deaf ears somehow. General Willoughby was said to have thought that, before the outbreak of the Korean War, it seemed as though the CIA was deliberately ignoring him. During the course of the meeting on the 1st of December, Truman laid down another gauntlet, that of increases to the defensive budget. Here again we come to the common one-two punch engaged in by the administration, having dealt with MacArthur's inexplicable mistakes and errors in judgment, brought on by unquestionable arrogance and hubris, Truman came to the real purpose of the meeting. In light of what had been done in Korea, accidentally or otherwise, it was clear that the Americans would need to invest more resources in its armed forces if they were to meet this challenge head-on. The Chinese intervention represented confirmation to many in the civil service and the opposition, not to mention the public, that communism was a monolithic threat to the free world, and that it moved with a plan directed from Moscow. This of course was far from the case, and there is no evidence, short of public pronouncements to this effect, which can be taken with a pinch of salt, that this was genuinely believed in Washington. If it was actually believed that the Soviets and Chinese moved as one, then why would there be two policy papers for the National Security Council? Remember NSC 73 and 76? Why would these have been written up in the first place? Yet the declared perspectives and dangers which the Truman administration could behold were almost more important than what Truman privately believed. Thanks to Mao's intervention, there seemed to be proof now that communism moved like one great beast. While not quite coordinated, it was certainly a beast which moved in support of its intrinsic parts. Thus the argument came to the fore again about Europe, representing the true, strategically important bastion of the free world. With the intervention of Mao came the belief that, in cooperation with his ideological vassal, Stalin, at this juncture, would move against Western Europe. As we know, this was far from Stalin's plan, although he was getting a bit sick of Josip Tito in Yugoslavia, but it was critical that for the sake of the proposed budgetary increases, reality and fiction were blurred. While MacArthur's credibility had been questioned, and his ability to gather intelligence pilloried, Washington's capability to do the same thing was somehow considered watertight. There were few voices that came forward to suggest that Mao's action had nothing to do with Stalin, or that the Korean War was not a Soviet concern. As he had done in the first week of July, Truman leapt at the opportunity to exploit this impression of events, which he made no effort to discredit. This time though, rather than public, he made a show of bringing those initially dubious members of Congress, in opposition or otherwise, into his confidence through an appeal to the nation's current vulnerability in its spheres of interest. Supplementary budgetary increases had been sent in July and September to the value of $17 billion, and now Truman requested more in light of the escalation of the situation in Korea. The President said, I hope you can consider this carefully and act fast. 
I have been anxious for you to get all the facts about the situation with which we are faced. That is why I have had General Smith, the director of the CIA, and General Omar Bradley here to talk with you today. I want you to know the facts on which these estimates are based. We are trying to get ready for mid-52, what we wanted for mid-53. Don't tell anybody, not even your wives. What you have heard here today is something even I don't want to hear, unless I push these people into telling me. Truman was setting the stage for the most striking increases in defense budgetary expenditure in American history. If the United States defense budget for 1950 was $12 billion, the combined values of the 1951 and 52 budgets would reach over $140 billion. Yowza! On the ground, this looked like a doubling of army divisions from 10 to 20 an increase in the Navy's aircraft carriers from 18 to 29, an addition of a third Marine Division, the manifold increase of the Air Force from 52 air wings to 80, and a total increase in military personnel from some 1.7 million to 3.6 million by the end of 1952. Let those numbers sink in a little bit. That's exactly what all those monies were going towards, and you would never see them more in action than you would on the Korean Peninsula. Seen in this way, the Korean War provided the effective supercharger to the American defence budget, after those assembled on the 1st of December gave their consent to the massive increases as Truman expected they would. Now that the United States had been caught with its pants down, not only did Truman have MacArthur as his prolific scapegoat, he also had the excuse, offend in the emergency of Chinese intervention, to push the defence expenditure to places it hadn't reached in living memory. All the while, Washington pressured its allies, particularly in London, to follow suit. Not merely the United States, but the Western Democratic Coalition of Free Nations was arming against the sinister threat of monolithic communism, personified so very conveniently in the theatre of war which the Korean Peninsula, for the moment, said Washington, managed to contain. In effect, we can discern a kind of three-step process in Truman's policy goals. The first, just achieved, was to create an emergency situation, whereby the desired increases in defence expenditure and military reach could be justified. The second step, still to come, was to remove from office the individual supposedly responsible for the emergency situation, which made such increases necessary. The third step, to take place in the coming years, was to implement the budgetary increases which Congress would vote on, and to oversee the ballooning of the American Armed Forces to brand new heights. Thanks to the figure of MacArthur, Truman had acquired at the very least a momentary representative for the failure of American intelligence, a scapegoat to explain away with a simplicity that the media and public could buy into why the United States had been caught with its pants down and how the Chinese communists had managed to just fly under the radar and emerge on the other side. For the moment it was enough for the United States to focus on MacArthur and on who was immediately responsible for the errors without thinking too deeply about what had actually occurred. In time, as Truman surely knew, he would have to answer more questions about the nature of the intelligence failure, but as the conventional historical record has shown, whether it was an inability to foresee the blatant threats posed by the North Korean People's Army in summer 1950, or that posed by Mao Zedong's volunteers several months later, temporary explanations could work wonders for a population and an historiography eager for a scandal. 
The arrogant general had led American arms astray, so the story went, and for the moment that story would do. In the meantime, the story could be increased by emphasising that arrogance and by smearing the general's character in subtle ways as the Allied collapse continued. As Truman had cunningly anticipated, it was very hard for the once cold MacArthur to become a sympathetic figure so long as American boys were dying and America's allies were feeling the pinch. The blame game, Truman ensured, was one he had invested far too much resources and preparation into to lose. Next time, we'll see how this game continued as the losses mounted for MacArthur's weary command and as the general faced further questions over his conduct, his lack of tact and of his willingness to use the atomic bomb. All the while, Truman built up the careful picture in the background of the general who had overstepped, failed and now needed, for the sake of American domestic and political stability, to be held accountable. I hope you'll join me for that then, history friends, but until then... My name is Zach and this has been the Korean War, episode 40. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.